The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, it is good to be uh, back in Medford uh, with many of you, um, faces that I absolutely recognize. Uh, Some of you look much taller uh, than what you were when you were 11 years old. Um, So uh, when you visit Bend, don't worry about the shock that I have sometime when I see your facial hair. It's really hard for me to get past that. So uh, it's really good to be though here with you. Uh, I want to say thank you to, to Jeff. Um, really appreciate uh, the ministry that is, is happening here uh, through Heritage. And you guys have uh, a man that is dedicated uh, to the gospel and to Jesus. And so uh, for that, I am super grateful, super grateful for his friendship. I don't know where he went, so I'm not even talking to him right now. Uh, but I just want to say thank you um, for the last couple years and the friendship, and, and it's good. So... All right. Well, for us here today, why don't you open up to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 6. That's where we're going to take our text from, moving into chapter 7 just a bit. And I want to welcome all of you to 2016. Everybody excited about that? Still having a hard time with 15, I understand. Um, They gave us hoverboards. That was supposed to happen. What they didn't tell us is they were all going to blow up, right? That's a... That's a bad thing. If you don't know that, you should read the news. Um, I blame ISIS for it. Since we're in Southern Oregon, you can blame Obama. Um, that was funny. Um, which is kind of life. If you really think about, about life and, and what we go through, uh, nothing ever turns out the way that we really expect it to be. Um, we all kind of have like a, a, a process or, or, or a thought of how we think things are going to end up, where we think we're going. As Jeff even mentioned uh, earlier, uh, you kind of have a a thought of, you know, the things you did last year are not going to take place this year, but the truth is, is that you really don't even know. And when most of us take time to look back on perhaps the previous year of life, the general conclusion that most of us come to is that life fits into two basic categories. You're going to want to write these down. The first category is life is jacked. That's the first category. The second category is life is really jacked. And most of us, we end up fitting into uh, one of those two boxes. And really, that's what Ecclesiastes is about. If you've never taken the time to follow Solomon's thought process as he uh, shares his wisdom, as he reflects back on his life, that's really what he tells us is that life under the sun is incredibly hard. That there's suffering. That there's injustice. You can't really even explain why. And some of you this past year, as you think back on 2015, you've really suffered an incredible amount of loss. Some of us have suffered the loss of friendship. Perhaps the deepest, most harsh loss that we we can ever face is the loss of some type of close relationship. Some of us have lost work. Some of us, the dreams that we kind of had or we kind of projected in front of us, those things are gone. Some of us have lost health. We have friends perhaps even right now in the ICU. Some of us have lost opportunities perhaps for ministry. Some of us have lost marriage. Some of us have lost children. You've suffered the loss of unmet expectation because we have these hopes. 
and then they aren't met. You've been criticized. Perhaps you've been rejected. Perhaps you've felt alone. Life has been hard. And if we're honest, we all feel that. We just came off of the Christmas holiday, and, and for a lot of people, sometimes we don't, we don't always remember this. If we do kind of have tight-knit family that we kind of come around and, you know, you, you kind of have that picturesque Thomas Kincaid, like, by the fire, Christmas moment, and everybody's gathered together, and it's all good. For the 99% of the rest of you, Christmas is a terrible reminder of how hard life is. It's time to cross people off the list that you used to send Christmas cards to because they're gone. Or they just don't even care anymore. Life is incredibly hard. And I guess the question that I want to throw out to us here today at Heritage is, like, how do you process that? Because all of us have kind of a default mechanism is how we, how we handle the inconsistencies and the hardships and the, the curveball, like the, just the junk that life throws at us. And, and I'm going to start at the end and then we're going to work our way back there. But in, in Ecclesiastes 7.14, Solomon, he, he says this to us. He says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one, the day of prosperity, as well as the other, the day of adversity, so that man may not find out anything that will be hereafter. Solomon says, hey, look, there's going to be days of prosperity that we, we are to rejoice in, but there's also going to be these days, sometimes weeks, months, years, a life of what we call adversity and his recommendation for us is to consider God in both of them now often we don't do that instead of considering God one of the mechanisms that we often fall into is we fall into elements of denial that we even have any problems right we are kind of like uh, you know the black knight in Monty Python I'll go back for you a little bit right like he's lost his arm and his leg and the dude's still going and he's just fine right? He's going to keep going. It's just a flesh wound. It's not a problem, right? And some of us are walking around with no arms and no legs, and we're like, hey, I'm blessed. It's okay. I'm good. Everything is fine. You're not. You're bleeding out, right? It's really, really hard. Uh, when you live in denial of your problems, you tend to stuff them. That's, that's, that's what you do. You don't acknowledge the reality of the difficulties that are actually happening around us. And when we don't acknowledge that reality, we create a sub-reality where everything is okay, but it's fake. It's incredibly superficial. And sometimes in the church, we hide behind the church mask of just putting it on and saying it's okay, and you're not. And it's really hard. And eventually, if left undone, you break. You absolutely break. Uh, others of us, the way that we process pain is, is we blame it on others. Maybe you have a, a sibling like this. Or a friend like this, where it's never their fault. It's 
always something else. It's always somebody else's issue. Uh, the loss of the friend was their fault. The loss of the marriage was their fault. The loss of the ministry was their fault. And by blaming it on someone else, it kind of helps to like bandage the pain because you, you, you try to find justification in what others have consistently done to you. We cover up the hurt with anger. We cover up tragedy with bitterness. And instead of dealing with pain, we end up just creating more. Others of us, we face pain with a kind of an I deserved it mentality. And what that means is like, you feel like, okay, I've been bad. And because God is good, that that means that he needs to do something bad to me because I have in fact been bad. So so constantly, like when pain comes into your life, you're like, what did I do? You're like Job's friends. Like wandering around saying, Job, there must be something secret that's in your life. And that's why these painful things are happening to you. And what happens with that is you end up adding to your pain grief and shame. And you live in this constant paranoia of the God that is out to get you rather than the God that gave his life for you. Finally, there are those that, that they process pain by living in despair because of the pain. You're, you're overwhelmed by grief. And, and it's difficult to even function. You can't go out. You can't see people. You're just so overwhelmed by this pain. You're lost in dis- despair. Uh, you're depressed. And that's how you process pain. We can learn several things from the text here today from Solomon's experience. Because Solomon, he doesn't bypass the fact that it's painful under the sun. Some people have said that the book of Ecclesiastes is the most real book in the Bible, like it just, it's just so, just, ugh, Solomon just puts it out there, like it's really hard. And Solomon, he understands that it's painful. He doesn't try to hide it. He doesn't try to deny it. He doesn't try to blame or shift blame uh, to anyone else. He doesn't get caught up in the sp- despair. Instead, he addresses three things. The first thing that he wants to tell us is that when it comes to pain and and pain that happens down here under the sun, which is a term he uses, we get to accept it. The second thing he says, look, okay, you can learn from your pain. That's number two. And the final thing is you trust God with the pain that is coming your way. So here we go. Uh, Accept it. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 10, the Bible says this, whatever he has come to be has already been named. And it is not known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? Thank you, Solomon. Which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will alter him under the sun? Solomon says, look, everything that happens, everything, every aspect, whether prosperous or with adversity, everything that happens, happens under the care of a big and sovereign God. Whatever has happened, he says, it's already been named. There is nothing in your life that has caught God off guard, not even your sin. There is not one aspect of who you are, of what's taken place before you, that God somehow goes, wow, I didn't see that coming. You know, what are we going to do now? 
You know, have a little huddle up with the Trinity. Like, that blew me away. That caught me totally off guard. That doesn't happen with God. There's no hurt, no tragedy, and no pain that somehow slips by him. Do you know what that means? That means that we can accept, first and foremost, that God is in control over the pain that we go through. Even though it seems like chaos, and even though it hurts, and it hurts deeply, God, who is sovereign even over our pain, is accomplishing something according to his will. We can accept that he is then stronger than us. That's what he says here. That he is wiser than us. That he is more perfect, more holy, and more aware of what we need than even we can comprehend or understand. So even the things that you think or you thought last year were absolutely killing you, even the things that bring, bring tears to our eyes, all of these things, they come under the watch and the care of God. The second thing in accepting is we need to accept that we're not God. Like we think we are, especially when it hurts. When you face difficulty, you may find yourself questioning God. Now, when I say questioning, I'm not saying like, you know, the book of James where it talks about, you know, if you, if you have a question and you're, you're asking of God. But like the questioning in the sense of questioning God's judgment. How could you? Why would you? If you're so good, then A, B, C, D. But rather, not questioning God's judgment. It's okay to ask for God for wisdom. We see that all throughout the Psalms. This is a different uh, aspect of questioning. You see, Western culture so idolizes comfort that anything outside of it must not be God's will. That's what we think. See, when our comfort is invaded, somehow that's when we start thinking, okay, maybe, maybe I'm not in God's will. Maybe I'm not uh, where I should be because I'm suffering pain. Because pain is actually one of our greatest idols. Or excuse me, Comfort is. Comfort is one of our greatest idols. So therefore, anything that comes in that is against that, we, we tend to think, oh man, something must be totally wrong because I'm experiencing this. And yet if we believe that God is over all of it, we can accept him in it. So Solomon says, we are so weak that we're not able to even contend with God about his will. God is this powerful creator. He is in control. We are mere creatures who cannot dispute, Solomon says, with this great and awesome Lord over all of the universe. So we can accept that he's God. We accept that he's in control. We accept that we're not God. And then we need to accept that we really don't know. And this is very, very key to us in pain. We really don't know what's good or bad. Do you know that? Not only do we not know what's coming ahead of us, we don't even know what's good for us. The things that we think are good for us are often bad. The things that we think are bad are often good for us. It's like the classic story, the, the old stories told of the, the Chinese woodcutter. There was a, a, a wise old Chinese woodcutter who lived troubled on, on the Mongolian border. And one day, his favorite horse, this beautiful white mare, jumped the fence and was seized by the enemy on the other side. 
And his friends, they, they came to comfort him, and they, they say, that's bad news about your horse. You've, you've lost your beautiful white horse. And the woodcutter, he simply looked at him, and he said, how, how do you know? Well, a week later, the man looked out his window to see his mare returning, and alongside the mare was this beautiful uh, stallion uh, that was riding alongside it. He put both horses in the enclosure, and his friends came to admire the new addition to his collection. What a beautiful horse, they said. That's good. And the woodcutter looked at them, and he said, how do you know? The next day, the man's only son decided to try out the new stallion. Uh, it threw him. He landed painfully. He broke his leg. The friends, they come by all sympathetic. Oh, we're sorry about your son's leg, and now he can't work. This is bad. And the woodcutter said, you guys are sharp. I'm getting the theme here. Within a, a month, war erupts on the China and Mongolia border. Chinese recruiters come through the area, pressing all the young men into the army. And the men came by and they said, this is bad. Your son cannot go. He will not be decked out with, with rewards and great things. And the man simply said, what? How do you know? All the men died that were in the army. Terrible. And the men, they come over and they say, this is good. And he says, how do you know? I could go on like for like hours with this little riddle, but that's the point, right? You don't, you really don't. We don't know what is in fact good or we think we do. We, we equate everything good with being in a place of comfort. We hate Pain, and yet sometimes pain is exactly what we need. Will tomorrow be a good day, or will tomorrow be a day of adversity? We don't know. Are we going to be happy, or are we going to be in this place of mourning? We don't know. The future is hidden, and we are not in control. And because we do not know, Solomon says here, you can't contend with God. That's where this idea of accepting that there is a God who is good and he is, he is in control. In the end of our life, in the end of our life, we're going to be able to look back and you're going to be able to see that life was like just this massive trip on Mr. Toad's wild ride. Who knows Mr. Toad's wild ride? It is the scariest ride in Disneyland. No three-year-old should ever have to endure Mr. Toad's wild ride. If you don't know, Mr. Toad's wild ride is a trip to hell and back. Like, who put that in the happiest place on earth? That is terrible. You get in there as a kid, right? And you get in your little buggy and you're all excited because you were just on Peter Pan and you flew all over the place, right? And it was a good time. And then you go in with Mr. Toad. You're thinking this is going to be great. And you get in there and you take the wheel and you are in charge of driving that car as a three-year-old. And you're spinning that thing, you know, and dad is like right next to you. And every turn, he's like, turn, 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 and turn, turn. You know, dad's living it up. Mom's in the backseat going, oh my goodness, what in the world? And so you're turning, you're making all these turns. But you know what the truth is? At the end of the thing, the child gets through it. He spun the wheel 50 different ways, and it didn't matter because he was on the right track. And that's us. Like, we get in these cars and we're like, okay, I'm making this turn here and I'm making this move here. I gotta avoid that there. And I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna freak out. And I, there's hell. And it's like, whoa, whoa, I made it to the end. My goodness. That's life. Theology by Anderson, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. 
right? We like to think that we are so in control. We dial down everything to the best that we can. We try to be as secure as possible, but you're not. God is in control. And he is taking us exactly where he wants us to go, using everything along the track to get us to where he wants us to be. And the problem is that we don't fully accept where he is taking us, especially when it seems bad, which is why we have no way to gauge. So we get to accept that dad is in control. We get to accept that things are gonna happen along the track and there will be things you cannot stop. You can try to argue with God with many words, Solomon says. You can try to even disagree with God, but look, you can't see the future. He can. You're not sovereign, he is. You don't know what the ultimate good is, he does. And if you're confused today, hurt today, suffering today, that, that's where you start in this processing of pain. Is okay, wait, wait, wait. I'm gonna pause for a minute, and there's God. And this God is in control. And this God knows a lot better than I do. I don't know what's good and bad, he does. So I'm going to accept that he is in control. Uh, second thing, as we move, uh, we get to learn from it. So that's the second thing. Here we go. So accept it, learn from it. Listen to what he says here. Uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Solomon has now spent his years doing life under the sun. He's done everything that you can do. He's experienced all of it to a greater degree than any of us ever will. And now he wants to tell us what he has learned through the process of pain along the way. Even the pain, he says, you learn in the midst of your pain. He, and the first thing he introduces us to here is he says, look, the funeral is better than the party, which is really weird. Because you read that, and you're like, Solomon, are you crazy? Like, how is the funeral? Like, if I am choosing between, like, like laughing and, and having a good time and going to the funeral, like, if I'm choosing between, like, Brian Regan and a broken heart, like, Brian wins. That's, that's just where I'm going with that. He's trending. Now, the point is not what feels better. The point is which one makes you wise. Which one is going to help you develop here the good name for the end of life? Because he's contrasting in that first verse to significant days in the human experience. The first one when you're given your name at birth and the last one when your name ends up in the obituary column. The life lived between those two events will determine whether the name leaves behind this beautiful fragrance. Oh, I remember him. I remember her. Oh, I, I remember that time. It, it, it was wonderful. It was, it was so good. I, I, I remember them like it was yesterday. It was so wonderful. Or, man, that guy was a jerk. That's why you got a line in the obituary column. 
What moments in life, listen, best develop character? I'm not saying up here today that death is better, but the significance of it is. I have experienced death. Family, friends, people, through life. I hate it. God hates it. That's why it calls it a sting in 1 Corinthians 15. But it develops a ton of character. Death has a profound effect on life. And I can tell you, I have learned more at the funeral than at the party. I have developed more in times of mourning than I have in times of laughter. C.S. Lewis, that, that, that amazing writer, has that profound quote where he tells us that God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he screams to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to arouse an incredibly deaf world and awake them to his greatness. Solomon says wise people go to funerals and they pay attention. Wise people see that all of life is these opportunities that God is giving us to learn, both in the pleasure and in the pain. You go to a funeral, and there's the stark reality that someday that is going to be you. That I'm, I'm going to die. And that is death teaching us. God, why the pain? To teach you to live wisely. The days are few. So each one needs to be invested carefully. How many times have you heard people say in the midst of difficulty, you know, the one thing that has come out of all this pain is I finally understand what is important. Because you learn in the pain. If you're married, one day your spouse is going to die. Happy 2016. <laughs> How should you love them today knowing that? How should you kiss your wife today knowing that tomorrow could be her last? You should. You tell her it's biblical that Lauren said so. Do you really want to hold on to bitterness? Like, like seriously, some of us walked in here because last week was really hard and we're bent. Like, and we're just angry. But now talking about death, you're kind of melting just a little bit. Like, melt. Let it go. Your kids may not outlive you. So wrestle with them. Throw the ball around. And I know that that's hard. Like, I have four, three, five, seven, and ten. I haven't slept in ten years. <laughs> I'm exhausted, right? But look for the moments, even when it's painful. A year and a half ago, I, I, I was being taken to the hospital to have an uh, uh, EKG done on, on my chest. I ended up being fine, but it was, it was really freaky. You know, I, I'd come home and ended up, tweaking something so bad in my back that it felt like my chest was caving in. So like the, the brilliant person that I'm in, like I'm on Google for two hours trying to figure out what's wrong with me, you know, self-diagnosis. We all do it, so don't laugh at me. 
and you know, everything is saying like chest pain, go to the hospital, chest pain, go. I'm like, oh God, I'll find somebody that tells me what I want to hear. And that's what some of us do with counselors too. So just FYI. And, and so I'm looking, finally, we're on the way there. And you know, one of my great kids in the back seat, just, just, you know, as we're, we're going, it's kind of a solemn moment in the car. And he's like, you know, dad's going to die. Like, oh, all right. You know, use it as a teachable moment. And I said, you're right, son. So, you know, we might as well make the most of the trip to the ER. Okay, so here we go. The point is, is death is an evangelist. Death is a teacher. And we get to learn from it. Death allows us to embrace, you know, the serious living for God. That's what it does. So don't try to, like, hide from it or avoid it. Like, it's there. Embrace the reality of it and learn from it. Death is not the only teacher. Uh, he goes on here and he says, so is sorrow. So many Christians think that if they, you know, love Jesus, they're supposed to live this continually happy, like, fulfill the American dream life. And, and that's just not true. I mean, Jesus wept at a funeral. And in that moment where Jesus is weeping, he is incredibly relatable. Do you know where Jesus is most relatable? It's not when he's walking on water. You can't do that, right? It's not when he's feeding 5,000. Like, we can step back and we go, wow. It's not even at the cross. Because even though he tells us to take up our cross and, and, and follow him, like, we just kind of limp along and lay it down. I mean, we don't even do that. Jesus is most relatable when he's in the garden and he's sweating these great drops of blood and he's saying, is there any other way? This is painful, this is hard, this is incredibly difficult. I'm going to my death. I'm gonna be separated from my father. Like the relationship that I've had from eternity is going to be done. It's in that moment where Jesus is relatable because God experienced pain and the same thing is true for us when you weep you're teachable when you weep and you're at that point of breaking like like that's when you're even relatable to other people that's when you're a missionary when people see you broken because everybody's broken and that's when you get to tell them like i can learn in this it's really hard. You don't have to try to mask it. That's not a mask that Jesus asked you to wear. There's a time for laughter, absolutely. There's a, there's a time to weep, though. Weeping allows others to participate with you, to help comfort you, and to help you learn to comfort others. And if you're dealing with sorrow, if you're kind of headed to the funeral, if that's kind of maybe where 2015 was or maybe where 2016 is headed, Ask God to teach you and remind you what is really important. The funeral and weeping give you perspective. It, it builds character. It develops wisdom. It gives you a good name. It teaches you. Well, uh, the next thing that we see there is in verse 5, and it says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. I don't know why. I always think of Lord of the Rings with that verse, but I don't know. Um, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. What, what is he saying here? He says, 
rebuke is better than flattery. That's what he's saying. No one likes to be rebuked. Nobody in here is going, yep, that's, I love that. I love it. So wonderful to be rebuked. No, we don't like that. We don't like criticism. Why? Because it hurts. It's painful. But that is where you learn and grow. Sometimes we surround ourselves with people that don't correct. We surround ourselves with people that flatter us because we do not want to be told what is really truthful. That is the song of fools. That is the laughter of fools that Solomon is talking about. My question is, would you rather have an honest friend or one that just tells you what you want to hear? Right? How do I look? Fat. (laughs) In and out for the 30th time since they've been open down here has not done you well. (laughs) How's my hair, honey? Well, it's thinning. You know, I mean... How do I look? Not stu- No, we don't. We want to be flattered, right? We want to be flattered. America suffers from this. If you don't believe me, just watch any episode of American Idol before the judges, right? The people during tryouts that make, they just make total fools of themselves. Uh, it's the guy or the girl that really thinks they're the next, you know, Taylor Swift, guy or girl. And they go into the room with just like this absolute confidence And it's terrible. Some of you watch it and you laugh. And then you show it to your friends, right? It's really bad. They make total fools of themselves. And then the judges, maybe for the very first time in their life, offer up a a criticism or a rebuke and they can't handle it. They go out of the room. And they're, you know, cursing and yelling and, and screaming, you know, and then the overbearing boyfriend or, or, or mother comes along and, and they're like, ah, oh, honey, we'll show them. You'll make it someday. You're going to be great. And the truth is they won't because they're not good. But we don't like hearing that because we're in like a no offense zone country, right? So like to tell people like honesty is really hard and it's really hard for millennials That's the generation under me. It's really hard for millennials to receive any kind of criticism or rebuke. If you have been rebuked, if someone has been strong enough and loved you enough and cared for you enough and has been a friend enough to you, that's because they care about you. Mom, a dad, a grandfather, a sister, a a wife, a, a husband. Like if somebody has just cared enough to you to say, hey, No, just no, don't do it. They love you. And that's our father. Like God lovingly corrects his kids. The father loves his children, so he rebukes them and he corrects them. It's out of his love. You also learn what to do and and, and where to go. So, So if you've been rebuked or corrected by God or a friend, it's because they love Otherwise, you just have these crackling of thorns, this flattery, something that is very brief. You know, there's a little bit of heat. There's lots of noise, but then it is gone. Proverbs 12.1 says, he who hates reproof is stupid. It's a good verse for 2016. He who hates re- rebuke uh, or reproof is stupid. If you push people out that, that are honest with you, that's a fool. Finally, we come to this. It says, 
Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. What else do we learn there? You learn that patience is better than pride. Patience says, in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my difficulty, not trying to show blame, you're not trying to, trying, to, trying to deny it, not trying to kind of like hide from it. No, no, no. What you're saying is, I can learn in the midst of this. Not I know what's best, God, but patience says, I don't know it all. Pride says, no one can teach me. It is in the middle of pain where we either learn patience or we become prideful thinking that we know better than God and we become angry with God about the circumstances that he has in fact allowed in life. Patience teaches us that in the end, God is doing something much better than what I could have ever done. Some of us are impatient and angry with God right now because things are not the way you wanted them to be. And I just want to say this, you're not at the end. Otherwise, we'd be at your funeral. Like, you, you're, you're not done. And you don't even know the end. But he does. See, all of us, like, we have this concept as a, as a Christian. We want to be like this mature oak, this strong Christian with just deep roots. But that takes a ton of time, and that takes weathering a ton of storms. That takes a lot of patience, realizing we have not arrived, and it is in our trials and our pain that we go deep and learn to be patient. Now, when you're going through pain, Sometimes you can get really nostalgic, he says here, right? You start to long for the good old days. Know anybody like that? Right? Like you start thinking, oh, you know, it was so much better when I was, you know, 12 and didn't have bills. Like it was so much better when I was in college. No, it wasn't, right? It was so much better in the 60s. No, they weren't. I've read books. It was so much better in the 90s, right? And I lived in the 90s. It wasn't better, right? There is pain in both places. There were pain in both spots. See, when you're going through what feels like just Mr. Toad's ride, like just a terrible trip to hell, God is teaching you patience. He is stripping you of who you think you are in your pride, and he is breaking you and building you up into the man or the woman that God is calling you to be. It's easy to long for the old days in those moments. It is easy to want to give up, but what I need to tell you today is hang in there. The end, he says, the end is better than the beginning. He is at work. This is why the follower of Jesus can quote and hang on to that, that you know, kind of Christianese verse that we all just want to give out as prescriptions all the time. 
that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The reason we can say that he's working all things out together for good is not because he's working all things out together for our comfort. Don't, don't take those two things and put, because it may just be hard all the way through for you. But he is working it out for your ultimate good and his ultimate glory. And because he knows that God is at work in the world, accomplishing his purposes, Solomon understands you learn from it. And the final thing today is you trust God with it. Last two verses, and we close. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be hereafter. We accept that there is a God. He's in control. We understand that it's through these, these things of death and sorrow and, and life and broken relationship and, and, and all of these areas where we learn patience and he's, he's building in us and, and he's working in us and he's, he's working through this process of, of pain, through re, re, rebukes and through criticisms. And, and we come to this final aspect and we learn that we trust God with it. And he says here, consider the work of God. In other words, just consider God. Whether in prosperity or adversity, consider God. Do you know what that means? That means if life is prosperous for you right now, just thank God for it. Like, maybe none of this other stuff is applied to you. I think that's impossible because we're all going through some aspect of pain. But, but maybe in a season where it's just prosperous and it's just kind of like things are good, you feel pretty good about like where you're headed, thank God for And it's okay to rejoice in the moment of prosperity. See, sometimes in the church, we, we don't rejoice enough. We don't celebrate enough when we are being prosperous because you know, everybody else around us is totally broken. You should celebrate. Like us broken people need some celebration sometimes. We need to hear that like, man, that's good. That's so great. Life is prosperous. Tell someone about it. Be, be joyous about it. Thank God about it. But if you are in the day of adversity, he says, consider that God has made that day as well. This kicks against the prosperity gospel. Because God brings both seasons, prosperity and adversity, for his good purposes. For some, that concept then of God is really frightening. Oh my goodness. God brings prosperity. God could also bring adversity into my life. That should freak you out if you don't know his character. That should freak us out if we don't understand his nature and his, his promises. You see, the same God who is sovereign and over all things. You know what the Bible tells us about the same God? The same God, when Adam and Eve went crooked in the garden and sin was introduced, he promised to send a seed to crush the serpent's head and to deliver us from death. The same God, when death was all but guaranteed, he said there's going to be a way to have resurrected life. When God flooded the earth, he says, you know what? We're not going to do that again. When slavery was the outcome of sin, he promised redemption. When there was enmity between God and man, he promises this element of reconciliation. When blood was needed for forgiveness, he gave us his. 
not requiring it of us. You see, God knows suffering not just because he knows everything, but because he himself experienced it. Through the cross, your sin has been paid. His life substituted for yours. And then there's that beautiful picture at the end of the book of Revelation where you see what? God, who's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And the only reason he's able to do that is because in Revelation chapter 5, there was a lamb who was able to take the seal. And that lamb was as a lamb that had been slain. Through pain, his own pain, he shows us that through suffering, he's able to wipe away our own tears. What looks crooked, only God can make straight. What looks twisted and painful and difficult, only God can make right. We do not know what is good, but we do know who is good. And we can see that in his character because of what he has accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. God, who is good, who knows best, allows the time of prosperity and suffering for us. So why does God do that? To balance our lives, giving us enough prosperity to keep us happy, but enough adversity to keep us humble. If we all had just prosperity, which is what most of us want, we would collapse with pride thinking how great we are and we would end up a fool, as Solomon says here. So God balances both prosperity and adversity. Both are good. Both do their job. They keep us humble. They keep us from trusting in ourselves. They keep us seeking him out, which means we have to trust him. And we can. Because our good shepherd became a lamb. Our father who disciplines sent his son. The one who revealed what sin was also became the sacrifice. He became the great high priest who's touchable in the midst of pain. And for that, we can say, okay, God, we accept it. We learn from it. And we can trust you with it. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful. That you've been a forerunner for us in the midst of pain. That you've been an anchor in the midst of pain. You've given us a comforter as we go through pain. And we thank you, God, that you've given us a, a body a body of believers that are able to love us well as your hands and feet as we go through pain. And we thank you that we don't have to just become all focused on our pain, but that there is a great hope that you've given us, that our tears will be no more, that you personally are gonna wipe them from our eyes we want to say thank you for being close to us in that way. We invite you, Spirit, now to be close to us in our hearts where we have suffered pain this week or this year where it's been really hard. 
thank you that you can, you can comfort now. We're going to invite you. We're going to sing this one last song. We're just going to invite you, if you'd like to, um, in the back, there's going to be some huddle group leaders. So if you guys would make uh, your way uh, to the back at this time, there's going to be, they're going to be available for you. You just need to talk with someone, pray with someone uh, concerning the pain um, that you're going through. And I want you to understand that they're not above the pain. They're, they're going back there, not just because they're huddle group leaders, but because they've gone through pain. They understand how God uses that. And they'd love to pray with you uh, right now, and then we'll, we'll close out the morning.